All right, let's go ahead and open our Bibles tonight. We are in the book of Ephesians, and we're in chapter 2. We look at verses 4 through 7 tonight. I'm excited. I hope that this sermon turns out as, as well as I am excited about it. Does that make sense? What I mean is, I hope you become as excited about this as I am, because there is just some really good stuff here uh, that we're going to be looking at tonight, things that pertain to you. If you're a child of God, uh, this pertains to you. These are our blessings, these are riches that, that God has uh, uh, increased you with as well. So I know we might be tired, and we might be sleepy, and we might be hungry, and we might be cranky, and there might be a lot of things wrong with us tonight. But when we look at this, there's some exciting stuff here. And so uh, let's, let's be focused on this tonight. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 4. Now we started in, in, in verses 1 through 3 last week talking about uh, what we were in sin or who we were before Christ. Uh, and we find at the end of verse 3 a hopeless situation where uh, we, we were the children of disobedience. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were, uh, we were facing God's wrath. But in verse 4 it says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. Let's ask God's blessings on the text tonight. Father, we do thank you for all that you've done. Uh, God, we ask that you would please be with every prayer request that's been mentioned tonight. You know them, and uh, you're aware of each and every one of them. And so we trust you with those tonight. Uh, God, we also pray that you direct our attention and our hearts towards you and your word. God, that you would open up your truth tonight to us and reveal to us uh, the wonderful and deep truths that we find here in these verses. God, I pray for me as the speaker that you would give me the words to say and help me to uh, speak the truth of your word plainly, uh, simply, that it may be understood. And uh, God, we're so thankful for all that you've done for us. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Tonight we're talking about being trophies of grace. And you'll see this as we go on a little bit further, but trophies of grace. And I want to explain that a little bit to you later on. But last week, before we get there, last week we looked at who we were in sin. If you look back up with me in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You had the quicken who were dead in trespasses and sin. So before Christ, when we were in sin, it says that we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. Not only that, but we find as we continue reading on that we were the children of disobedience. Because we were dead in sin and because we were the children of disobedience, we find in verse 3 that we were also the children of wrath, meaning that we were waiting to inherit uh, the very wrath that we deserved and, and the very wrath that had been passed down to us because of, of sin. Now this week what we're going to look at is not who we were in sin, but who we are in Christ. And so there, there's some, again, some great truths that we're going to look at here. But let's remember, first of all, that salvation, as we look at these verses, salvation is not something that we've done. Okay? This isn't a story where, look at where you were, 
and look at where you've gotten yourself. That, that's not at all what Paul is saying here. Uh, this is saying, look at where you were. Look at your hopeless condition. Look at, look at yourself when you were helpless and, and there was no way whatsoever that you would ever find your way yourself back, uh, coming back to God. He says, look at all that and now I want you to look at what God has done for you. And that's going to be our focus tonight in verses uh, 4 through 7. We're going to look at three things tonight. First of all, let's talk about God's wealth toward us. God's wealth toward us. And uh, there's two ways that we find God being wealthy here. First of all, we see that God has a wealth of mercy towards us. If you look in verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, the word rich there, in case you don't know this, means to be wealthy. And, uh, and so it says, God, who has a wealth of mercy, uh, this God has done something for us. Now on the surface, as we look at this word mercy, uh, we can easily define mercy as not getting what we do deserve. Amen. Not getting what we do deserve. And there's another word that seems to always accompany the word mercy, uh, and that is the word grace. And the word grace means getting what we don't deserve. So mercy is when we don't get the bad things that we do deserve. Grace is where we do get the good things that we don't deserve. Does that make sense? And so that's the difference between mercy and grace on the surface. But like every one of God's attributes, we know uh, that the meaning of his mercy, when it says that God is merciful or it talks about the mercy of God, we know that like everything about God, the meaning goes way beyond what we find on the surface. And so when we talk about mercy, uh, we first of all have to remember that God is completely holy and righteous, meaning that if he is holy and righteous, that he cannot be in the presence of sin. First uh, John says that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And guess what? He can't even have fellowship with darkness. So God is so bright in his holiness and his righteousness that no sin can come in and have fellowship with him. No darkness is allowed to come into his presence or his fellowship. And so we know that if God is holy and righteous, and if we are dead in sins and trespasses, then we've got a big problem. Why? Because we as sinful people could not come in and have fellowship or relationship with a holy God. In walks God's mercy then. And what we find about God's mercy is that His mercy is how it's possible because really otherwise it's impossible but mercy is how God makes it possible for a holy God to show kindness and compassion on sinful people. Because all we deserved and all we had to look forward to was death, destruction, punishment, and wrath upon our sins. It's exactly what we deserve. It's not, not what we want to hear. doesn't make us feel good about ourselves, but without Christ, that's exactly what we deserve. There's another word that we must throw out here as we talk about God's mercy and His goodness, uh, and that is the word justice. Now, the word justice, is uh, it, it talks about what we deserve for our sins. Justice is God doing what is just and right. 
Okay, so then if he is a holy and righteous God and we are a sinful people, if God is to do us justice, then justice is him giving us exactly what we do deserve. If you break the speed limit and there's a fine for the speed limit, justice is you paying exactly what that fine says for the speed limit. You getting exactly what you deserve for breaking that speed limit. If the penalty of murder is imprisonment or even the death penalty and you get imprisonment or the death penalty, then you have gotten justice. You've gotten exactly what you deserve because of the crime that you have committed. So that's what justice is. Now, when we talk about justice, justice is God's ability to have the rod of wrath lifted and ready to swing on us, right? And if you grew up with a dad like mine, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The wrath of uh, the rod of his wrath lifted and ready to swing. That's what justice is. But listen, mercy is when he steps in and takes the blow for us. Now, in verse 3, we were the children of wrath. I mean, he was ready. He had it ready to unleash on us his full fury, his full wrath. But in verse 4, it says, but God, who is rich in what? Mercy. Mercy is God's undeserved kindness on sinners. God, who is rich, who is wealthy in mercy... It says He did some things for us. He swooped in. He stepped in. And where we deserve justice, He took the punishment for us. When you look at a cross, you see a picture of the cross, you think about the cross, you read about the cross, and somewhere, whether it's in a a picture that someone's drawn or a picture that you've drawn in your mind, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you need to remember every single time that that was Jesus taking what you deserve. It's not just a religious symbol. That that is when God Himself took the very punishment that He was about to release on you. That's what mercy is. A guy once had his picture taken. He was very upset with the photographer and with the picture. It didn't turn out the way that he wanted it to. He rushed back to the photographer and he said, look at my picture. This picture does not do me justice. The photographer said to him, he said, he said, sir, with a face like that, you don't need justice. You need mercy. (laughs) Exactly where we stand. We could go to God and we could say, look, this does me injustice. I'm not as bad as what this says I am. I, I'm, not as, I'm not as crooked. I'm not as sinful as, as what verses 1 through 3 says. But the truth is, is that you are. And so instead of asking for God to give you what you justly deserve, because you don't want that, we need to look at and appreciate the mercy of God, which is able to cover over those blemishes that we find in ourselves. That's mercy. Now, not only is is God wealthy in in mercy, or does He have a wealth of mercy, but we find in verse 4, as we continue reading on, that there's also a wealth of love that He has for us. Now, grace and mercy, let's go ahead and read verse 4. It says, but God who is rich in mercy, now read the rest of this, for His great love wherewith He loved us. 
Now, as I was saying, grace and mercy are words that you're going to hear often in the scriptures, and you will a lot of times you'll hear them uh, right together with one another, as we're finding here in this text. But the source of both of these streams, the stream of mercy and the stream of, of grace, the source of both of these streams is always located at the fountain of God's love. You see, there's an inescapable truth that we find in the Bible that not only is God holy and not only is God righteous and not only is he just and not only is he a lot of other things, but the Bible says God is love. And where his holiness and his righteousness demanded that his broken law be paid for, his love was able to step in and create a way for us to escape that judgment. That punishment. It says for his great love wherewith he loved us. He is rich in mercy. As we find here in this verse. But he's only rich in mercy because of the great love. It says wherewith he loved us. I want you to look at our verse here. If, if you're reading uh, in the KJV with me tonight. Uh, it says there in verse, in verse 4. It says but God who is rich in mercy. And then you're going to see the word for, F-O-R, for, the word for, for his great love wherewith he loved us. When we look at that word for, sometimes it's hard to do this unless you just dig in and and find what's there. But the word for literally means uh, because of or in order to satisfy. Now let's read it that way. It says, but God who is rich in mercy in order to satisfy his great love. Wherewith he loved us. You see, despite our sin, despite what we find of ourselves in verses 1 through 3, what we find here is that God's love desired to be demonstrated towards us. Yes, we had wronged God, we had sinned against God, we deserved his punishment, deserved his wrath, so on and so forth. But his love stood and it, it wanted, it desired to demonstrate itself towards us. And so in order to satisfy the longings of his great love, it says that he reached down to us with hands of mercy and grace, kindness, forgiveness. And aren't we glad that he did? He has a wealth of mercy. A wealth of love. Now, here's what it moves on to. We've only talked about His wealth. We've talked about the mercy and we've talked about the love of God. But what did it do for us? What action did it step out and take? Well, we find that as we continue reading on in verses 5 and 6. We see not only God's wealth towards us, but we see His work in us in verses 5 and 6. Let's go 5 and 6. Let's go ahead and read that. It says, Even when we were dead in sins has quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now I want to point out a couple of things here. First of all, it says that because of His rich mercy and His great love, it says that even when we were dead, God demonstrated His mercy and love towards us in three ways. Okay, There's three things that He did here. Three things that His... Uh, mercy and love had to do for us. And this is what it did. First of all, it says that he quickened us. And the word quickened there means to make us alive. 
to make us alive. Verse 5, it says, even when we were dead in sins or trespasses, it says he has quickened us or made us alive together with Christ. The second thing it says he did is he raised us up. If you look at the first part of verse 6. So he made us alive, and it says he raised us up. And then the third thing is, as you read down towards the end of verse 6, is he seated us. So because of his wealth of mercy and his wealth of love, it says that he has given us life, he's made us alive, he has raised us up, and he has seated us somewhere. Now we'll come back to those and what each of these are talking about, but there's so much more for us to look at. Now, these alone, if we just stopped right there and just said, this God who could have done all these things, he could have, he could have poured his wrath on us without question and been completely righteous in doing so. This God that could have done all these things, instead what he's done is he has given us life. He has raised us up together with Christ. He has seated us in heaven places. That would be enough right there. We could, we could just go home rejoicing in that alone. But I want you to see there's much more. To what's being said here. I want you to remember just for a second. What God did for Christ. A few weeks ago. I preached a sermon about four things the father did on resurrection day. I don't know if you remember that. Y'all slept since then. But we talked about four things that that the father did for for Christ on on resurrection day. And it's found over in chapter 1 verse 20. So if you would. Slip back there with me just for a second. We're actually just going to look at two of those things. That God did for, for him on resurrection day. But if you look at verse 20, it says, Which he wrought in Christ when he, number one, raised him from the dead, and number two, set him at his own right hands. Where? In the heavenlies. In the heavenly places. Two things that God did for Christ on resurrection day is, number one, he raised him from the dead. He gave him life. He raised him from the dead. And he seated him in heavenly places. Now I want you to get this. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to list some things that God has done for us. Now, each of these words that we're going to look at, the word quicken, the word raise, the word seed, it all uses a preposition called seen, which in our, in our language, in English, is where we get the word sync from or the word synchronization from. Now, if I synchronize something, if I sing in sync with other people, how am I singing? I'm singing with them, right? In unison with them. If I am swimming, you, you've seen synchronized swimming, right? And those, those, uh, those ladies I, I get out there, they'll, they'll all swim, and, and they're all in sync with one another. What does it mean? It means that they're moving in unison or together with one another. Alright, so with that same word, the word sync, it says that God has done some things uh, in synchronization with, in joint participation with Christ. And what we find here is that just as God raised up Jesus and seated him at his right hand, we find here that, number one, he also made us alive, look at verse 5, made us alive how? Together. In sync with who? Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. Not only that, but it says that He also raised us up. How? Together. In sync with Christ. And He has seated us. How? Together. Look at the end of verse 6. He has seated us together where? 
in heavenly places. Wait, where do we see the where do we say the Father had seated Christ? In the heavenlies, it says he is also not only given us life, not only raised us up with Christ, it says he has seated us in the heavenlies in Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that right now, although you see me standing up here with my scaly head and all the other stuff going on. Although you see me here, I want you to understand, spiritually, I am seated together with Christ in heavenly places. I am a child of God. I am an heir to His inheritance. I'm not who I was. I'm in Christ. And I want you to get this. If you know Christ as Savior, if you've been saved, this all applies to you. You have been given life. You were dead, but He made you alive. He raised you up. And He seated you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What that tells me is is that although I may not have a lot of pull here on earth, I've got authority in heavenly places. I I don't get to be ruled or have to be ruled by other things or other forces or enemies that might want to make me think that I'm, you know, you see, I'm victorious because I'm seated in Christ in heavenly places. Seated with Him. Man, if we could grab hold of that and understand what that means. I, I just, I'm just introducing us to this. But if we could really get what that means to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. Not just seated with Him, but seated in Him. Right. In heavenly places. That's enough to be life-changing right there in and of itself. That changed the way you look at this world, changed the way you look at your life, changed the way you look at, at ministry and church and all kinds of stuff. There's some, there's some great stuff here. I want you to think of it like this. God did not just withhold punishment from me. That's what we said mercy means. God did not just withhold punishment from me. He gave me life. He exalted me. And He seated me in Christ Jesus. I didn't deserve a bit of it. But you know why He did it? Because He is rich in mercy and in love. Now there's one more thing that we skipped over. You probably saw this. We skipped over another thing. It's in parentheses. Another phrase here that's so important and so so vital that we get this as well. But just a few simple words here. It says, by grace are you saved. By grace are you saved. Now here we could focus on grace. And there's, there's a couple of things we could focus on here. But there's something I want to pull out of this. I think it's so 
important for us. The text here is very rich in meaning. If you look with me in that text, it's in, at the end of verse 5. It says, by grace ye, and then the last two words there says what? Are saved. Okay? This is a very, very strange construction in the Greek language. I'm not going to give you a Greek lesson. I'm not going to talk about the Greek words. I'm just going to tell you that this is a very strange construction. It's very hard to translate uh, when, you, when you try to pull all this together. Uh, here it says, by grace ye are saved. When I translated it, I, I rendered it as, by grace you have been saved. There's a couple of ways you can render this because there's really no simple way in the English language to say what Paul's really saying here. So I'm going to do the very best I can to explain it to you tonight uh, as clearly as I possibly can. When you look at the word saved here, we'll work backwards. Look at the word saved at the very end of of verse 5. The word saved here is in the perfect tense, which indicates, don't be confused by perfect tense, just listen to this part. It indicates that it's something that both happened and was completed in the past. Now, when did that happen? When was I saved? I was saved the moment that I heard the gospel and trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Okay? So when that happened, I can, I can go back and point on a calendar and tell you when it happened. It doesn't matter if you can or not, but you should be able somewhere in your mind to go back and remember when you were saved. At that moment when I was saved, that was something that happened then and it was completed. It's completely done. I don't have to be saved ever again. I don't have to worry about whether I'm saved today or whether, whether I'm going to need to be saved in the future. No, my salvation is completed. It's done. All right? So it's a completed action and past time. But there's another word here, not just saved, but the word before that says are. It says you are saved. Now, the word are here is in the present tense. Saved is past. Are is in the present tense. Meaning that although our salvation was completed somewhere in the past, that the effects and benefits are present and continual. In other words, I was saved and I am saved. Here's one way that someone explained all this. We have by grace you are saved. So they went to expand that translation a little bit. And this is what what they put. It says, by grace you have been completely saved with the present result uh, that you are and will continue to be saved. Now let me try to say that one more time in a much simpler way. Once saved, always saved. My salvation was completed the day I trusted Christ. He had already paid the price for my sins. When I received Him, He regenerated my heart. He made me alive. He raised me up. He seated me in the heavenlies. And guess what? I'm still saved. I'm going to be saved. And throughout the ages, you go, you fast forward 10 million years into the future. And guess what? I'm still going to be saved. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What's also interesting is we have the very same construction in verse 8 where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Now how did I get that salvation? It was by grace. It was through faith. Let me look at one last thing here. Uh, Not only God's wealth, not only God's work in us, but let's look at God's will for us. Okay? Now, he did all this work for a reason. 
Again, not just so that we can sit pretty, not just so we can sit around and say, hey, I'm a child of God, you're not, blah, blah, blah. That, that's not why he saved us. He saved us for a purpose. He saved us for a reason. Huh? Let's look at part of what that reason is. Now, in times past, we talked about the purposes of our salvation and what God wants to do in us. Is a, of course, for us to be lights to others, to, to be able to influence others to Christ. And that's absolutely a part of why God has saved us. But he touches on another uh, thing here. And I want you to read that in verse 7. It says in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Now, the question that we might ask tonight is, why after verses 1 through 3, as we've seen what we were, why after those verses would God do all that he has for me in verses 4 through 6? Well, the answer is found in verse 7. The reason why he did all those things that we've looked at tonight. The reason why he has given me life, why he's raised me up, why he has seated me in heavenly places, why he is abundant and rich and wealthy towards me and grace and mercy and love and and so on and so forth. The reason for all that is so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace I want us to look at a word here that I think is, is necessary. The word show. It says that he might show. If you're reading KJ with me, it says shoe. But it means show, okay? <laughs> Just put an O there. It means show. The word show there means to demonstrate or to display something. To demonstrate or display. Let's put all this together. You see, all this was done, four through six. All this was done to demonstrate or to put on exhibit the excessive wealth of God's grace and kindness towards us. Let me say that another way. We are trophies of God's grace. And He has put us on display for the ages to come and to see the exceeding wealth that He has in mercy and love grace and kindness. He's got a wall of grace. Think about this. He's got a wall of grace in the heavenlies. And anybody can walk through and, and, and see your picture on that wall of grace. And they can ask the question, how wealthy is he in grace? Look at all these trophies. All these are His. He saved all of these. Now listen, we have a tendency sometimes to get very um, proud or prideful when it comes to these. I've told you a lot of stuff that could puff you up tonight, all right? You walk out of here, man, I, God's lucky He has me. Listen, we need to be encouraged by these things, but let's not be conceited in them. Now, we're not going to take any way, anything away from what we learn, but I want to show you something. I, I think this verse is so important. You see, all through the Bible, we find God doing the most amazing things with the most unlikely people. I want you to think about it. Let's go back to creation. In creation, let's go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when God created everything, last day He created all the beasts and the 
all the stuff, uh, you know, all the animals that creepeth on the earth. It says, but the very last thing he created was what? Man, and we are so important, aren't we? And we were the crown of his creation. We were going to be made in the likeness, the image of God. But I want you to think about this. He had all the resources, all earthly resources at his disposal to make us with. But you know, I don't find anywhere where it says that he went and, uh, and, and got a huge diamond and chiseled man out of, out of a diamond or out of sapphire or out of gold. Or, you know what it says? It says he went up and he scooped up some dirt. Could have used anything. He used dirt. <laughs> dirt. And that's what he made the, the precious treasure of his creation with. Fast forward a couple years later and he got ready to make a nation of Israel. You know what? He didn't use the Duggars. You know what he used? He used an elderly couple who couldn't have children. That's who he started the nation of Israel with. Fast forward several years later, there was a great giant that defied the God of the armies of Israel. And you know who God used to defeat them? It wasn't his armored king who stood a head taller than everybody else in the camp. He used a little shepherd with a sling and a stone. See, God doesn't need the biggest and the baddest and the best and the brightest and... All of that. We, we see over and over again that God has used the foolish things to confound the wise. Now, why would He do that? I think it's very simple so that He gets all the glory. You see, it would have been no contest for someone who had lots of kids to begin a nation and later on say, we began this nation. We're the ones who started this. We've done that. We've, great, we've made this great number of people. But you see, when God used a childless couple who's barren and cannot have children, and from them makes a nation in multitude as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven, there is nobody that we can point to and give credit to but God. Exactly. I want you to look at this verse with me again. Why did God do all this stuff for us? We saw what we were, and it wasn't much. We saw what He did. It was so extravagant. Why? That in the ages to come, if any ask God to show them how great His mercy is, how great His grace is, if anyone asks, all He has to do is point to us. You want to know how great my grace is? I want you to look at Anthony Phillips. I could even save him. I want you to look at Jim Barr. You want to know how big my grace is? I want you to see what he was before and look what I've done with him now. I want you to take a a Calvin. look Look at Calvin Brooks. Have you considered my servant? What he was before and what he is now. Brother Hall or Brother Decker or Brother Glenn. You want to know how big and how great and how powerful my grace is? All you got to do is look at what I've saved. Amen. 
Listen, I'm so glad that He didn't come to call the righteous because I'd be hopeless. But He came to call sinners like me unworthy unlovable he's made me a treasure he's made you a treasure why so that in the ages to come he can show you and put you on display to the power and the glory of his grace and kindness towards us who are completely undeserving. I want to read to you the translation that I I have done. I, I've translated these verses and studying them. I just want to read these to you tonight. Starting in verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even we being dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up together and seated us together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that He might display in the coming ages the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Tonight, there is obviously an urgency here for anyone who has not trusted Christ to believe the gospel and be saved. But I want you to get tonight that Paul wasn't writing to lost people here. He was writing to the saved. He was writing to those that had already experienced His mercy and grace, who had once stood as the dead and the disobedient and the deserving of wrath, but now are able to stand in the riches of His mercy and love. He says to them, people who had been forgiven, He says, I've got a bigger plan for you. Listen, I want you to understand, if you know Christ tonight, we have been moved from death to life. We've been changed from children of wrath to children of God. And God is rich in mercy and grace and love. We've been raised and seated with Christ. And why do we need to know this? Because what we know and we believe will change the way we behave. So many are still acting and living as though they're still in the ruts of sin and still operating in the darkness before. But I want you to know, He's brought you out of that. And you're not seated there anymore. You're not lying in the rut of darkness. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We've got to live like it. We've got to ask God to open our eyes to these truths and, and use them to motivate us to live for Him and every day to let others know that the same grace He has given to us 
He's extended to them as well. And if they ever want to know, how do I know God can save me? The only answer we have to give them is, I know He can save you because He saved me.